0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book, Off the Edge flat earthers conspiracy culture and why people will believe anything on this podcast we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of americans view the world and how they vote even in the aftermath of the trump administration the energy of these conspiracy theorists grifters and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point Welcome to Fever Dreams. We're joined this week by guest host and our guest host for the next few weeks, Sam Brody. Sam, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great to be here, Will.
0: Sam is a congressional reporter for the Daily Beast. He's the guy haunting the halls of Congress. He's getting in those scrums. He's getting kicked out of the speaker's lobby for not wearing a tie. But they're still doing that kind of stuff. Still are. This is real, like House of Cards hours.
1: It seriously is. I haven't been allowed <laughs> in the speakers' lobby for years now <laughs> for refusing to wear a tie and for my affinity for comfortable footwear. So. His his loose behavior,
0: behavior. to band in DC. That's not where the scoops are, Will. <laughs> It certainly seems that way. Although, actually, this week, all the big news is out of Congress because of the January 6th hearing. I think it's so great that we have you on as our congressional expert. We're going to dive really into all the January 6th Select Committee riot topics. But first, I want to get into, I think, the most important revelation out of the Select Committee, which is Bill Barr making fun of Dinesh D'Souza's documentary. So... (laughs) Fever Dreams listeners will know this is a long time pet project of mine is Dinesh D'Souza's incredibly thin skin about his bogus voter fraud documentary, 2000 Mules, which has been fricasseed and filleted, not just by the mainstream media, but by many of his fellow travelers on the right. No one takes it seriously. It's getting a ton of downloads and purchases. So I think Dinesh should take the money and run. But nevertheless, he demands respect. And so during the Monday hearing, they played a video of former Trump Attorney General Bill Barr they asked him what he made of Dinesh D'Souza's supposed claims of voter ballot trafficking and GPS coordinates and what have you. And Barr didn't even really bother to engage with it much. He just said like the mention of 2000 mules. He just said. (laughs) What I
1: love about Barr in a weird way is that like he has testified before in front of Congress and he makes clear his contempt for stuff that he thinks is stupid or useless pretty clearly. And in the past, I think that was deployed in in a fairly sinister way. It's fun to see those considerable powers turned on Dinesh D'Souza because this is like, just that little glimpse, it's like, yeah, man, Bill Barr does not think highly of Dinesh D'Souza, and it's just the tone of that laugh that completely gets
0: it. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're looking at here is the divide between these kind of, like, skilled, old Republican hands, like Bill Barr involved in all these, these uh getting all the people involved in Iran Contra off, stuff like this, and then the significantly less competent new generation. And So he's like, these new guys can't do it. You don't make a whole kind of bumble documentary. So Dinesh send a couple just absolutely fuming tweets about Bill Barr. And, and maybe I shouldn't say a couple because there were a ton. And let's see if you can notice the theme. Bill Barr is the stereotypical small-town sheriff, overweight and largely immobile. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then he calls him fatso. Okay. Moving on. What do you say, Bill? He challenges him to a debate and he says, Do you dare back up your belly laughs? <laughs> he says, and now this one gets almost like a little like it. if I was a psychologist, I think I could have quite a few billable hours with Dinesh on this one. I've been thinking about Bill Barr's sycophant laughter before the Democrats, and it reminds me of fat boys in my school in India who were always laughing. I suspect the reason was twofold. One, they couldn't fight. And two, they couldn't run. Now, there's a lot going on there. I mean... (laughs) he's getting real this is like a lot of anger over a couple scoffs
1: is dinesh is he a sort of serial self-retweeter
0: yes you're seeing here in the documents
1: i can see here that he has retweeted all of his own tweets about bill Barr. yeah there's a lot of weird stuff going on here do we think that like dinesh had like a really bad experience as a child with these like
0: with these laughing fat bill this, Barr, yeah. indian bill Barr, this cabal of fat bullies in his elementary school <laughs> He's definitely, I think, bringing a lot to the table here, a lot of baggage, perhaps. It should have been a great day for Dinesh. Donald Trump put out like a 15-page document essentially based entirely on 2,000 mules saying the election was stolen, all this stuff. And yet the quest for legitimacy for 2,000 mules continues. If I had to guess, there's going to be, I think, next year kind of a an attempt to get 2,000 mules a Oscar for a documentary. I think, and then maybe Dinesh will be real mad about that. I think there's a lot of ways that we can continue seeking respectability for 2,000 mules.
1: Yeah, well, I should say, I don't know if this is something that's happening or people have noticed but i went to a trump rally like two months ago in north carolina and like you know how they play like all kinds of if you go to a trump rally like there's just like six hours of programming beforehand of just various speakers but they play a lot of stuff on the like huge video screens that are at the rally and they they played like a really long trailer for 2000 mules At the rally. And I couldn't really tell if people were paying attention. It was heavily hyped as an event. So Oscar bait potentially, but to your point, (laughs) well, there's a, there was at least 2000 people at that rally who might've been paying attention to the trailer.
0: Well, just closing out 2,000 Mules here, I think what's going on here is 2,000 Mules, I think, has been pretty successful among the Republican grassroots. But what it needs is this sort of buy-off from the Republican elites. And the reason for that is because the people watching 2,000 Mules aren't going to be like, all right, well, let me take a look at this GPS geofencing data here. Like a lot of this, of the coronavirus alternative theories, a lot of this relies on having people who are seen as a sort of trusted messengers confirm that it's legit. And so when Dinesh has people like Ben Shapiro or Bill Barr just saying, ah, oh, there's a load of garbage don't believe this. I do think that hurts his credibility. Moving on, though, into the larger January 6th hearings. Sam, your eyes are closely on Congress. You're always looking at what they're up to. What was your expectation for how the committee hearings would play out so far? And how has the reality matched your expectation?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think Expectations. I didn't really have a firm set of expectations, though I should say that, like, my sense was, and I think the broader sense was, is that they were going to have some new stuff and some good stuff just because it's been clear, like, we haven't seen really any public activity from the committee, but like, they've been conducting their depositions in this, like, suite of offices on the Hill and. We've seen all the various like officials and Trump world luminaries and all kinds of figures who've come and gone and sat for lengthy depositions with the committee. And so we knew that they were getting a lot of stuff. So I didn't think, though, that they were going to get this much stuff. And I think I did not expect that they were going to present it in as kind of organized and compelling a way as possible. So I guess just to like step back, I covered both of the Trump impeachments on Capitol Hill. I covered the pre impeachment, the Mueller report rollout and subsequent hearings. And like, it's really hard to get members of Congress to stay on script and to like focus on like the obvious thing that they should be focusing on. It sounds kind of weird, but like these are people all looking for their moment in the limelight and to kind of freelance and get on their hobby horse about whatever thing in the Mueller report or whatever, at least this was the case for Democrats. And like, This January 6th committee has been super disciplined. They are like sticking to the script. They're like, it's a pretty solid script. And like the presentation has been pretty great. It's really unusual to see these like videos of the depositions you can see bill barr's belly laugh you can feel it and that's not been that, the. It's mean, like case. avatar
0: 2 man we're, we're, we're like the future of cinema
1: <laughs> we're in vr here and like that hasn't a feature in any of the prior things so yeah i think that especially that first hearing i think the sense seemed to be okay wow this is the impact of this and and the presentation of it is maybe going to carry a greater weight than than we thought it did and i think a part of that too is is also be, there's no republican i mean there's two republicans on it but there's no pro-Trump Republicans on it. So like the bickering and all that stuff that kind of consumes some of the past impeachment proceedings and whatnot was not going to be a feature here.
0: That is really funny. I mean, obviously the Republicans refused to do a 9-11 commission type investigation. And so they sort of had themselves shut out by their own decision. But you could imagine Kevin McCarthy watching this at home and thinking, golly, I sure wish Jim Jordan was there.
1: Yeah, I mean, like they really missed an opportunity here to have this, like whatever this was gonna be to investigate January 6th, not be this. I was surprised at how strongly they came out of the gate making this about Trump. It wasn't that I didn't think they were gonna do that, but like they went for the jugular like pretty quickly in laying out that like this suite of hearings and like ultimately the report that they're gonna release is going to quite clearly say that (laughs) all of this is Trump's fault, more or less, and we're gonna provide a ton of evidence like supporting that claim. And I don't know if that would not have been the case for an independent commission, but it would have looked a lot different than this.
0: So you mentioned some of the revelations that you were surprised by. Let's run those down. I mean, what were some of the things that stood out to you? There's so much interesting stuff. I think
1: the fact that I mean, like the stuff that grabs the most headlines is sort of the obvious stuff. But like the fact that Trump basically is telling people that like, he would be cool with this mob of armed people, like, killing mike pence on the spot that part was pretty crazy that's crazy i did not think they were going to get stuff like that
0: people like him saying like is these people are chanting like hang pence and he's like maybe they're on to something maybe they should do that and just like you imagine mike pence at home watching this thing like hey that's me
1: exactly and it's the kind of thing you can like imagine trump say and that's like why it works because it's in all likelihood true But it's just not the kind of thing that like we have been used to seeing from these kinds of committees in the Trump era. Like... If that had come out in any prior proceeding, it would have been like a news cycle dominating bombshell. And like that was the headline maybe out of, out of that first one in addition to some other stuff. But that was just one thing in a lot of them. I mean, the fact that Bill Barr is on tape, like just totally like dissecting these Trump team fraud claims and the fact that Ivanka Trump is like on tape again, I keep coming back to it, but the, it's really powerful to have them like in their own words, like on camera saying this stuff instead of like a block of text. But then there's like some little stuff. I think the hearing yesterday was super interesting in that it indicated that clearly the committee is going to like follow the money a little bit here and dig into some of the stuff that isn't so obvious. So like the fact that like the Trump campaign raised like $150 million explicitly off election conspiracies in the week after the 2020 election, like that's really remarkable. And so I think there's going to be some really interesting stuff here about like the extent to which this whole... Kind of post-election fundraising effort was kind of just another Trump grift. Like Kim Guilfoyle got a like sixty thousand dollars speaking fee for just like going on stage at the January sixth rally. That's
0: the Ellipse rally.
1: Yeah, the Ellipse rally.
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah, it's nuts. And like so, I, to the extent they might have more stuff like that, I mean, that alone is really interesting and sort of like. Puts a whole new, like, adds a whole nother dimension to this that ultimately could be really powerful. Like, the Wall Street Journal kind of like did their Wall Street Journal thing, but like the tone of their editorial was like, Trump sort of betrayed his supporters. And well, now if you've got all this evidence, like, yeah, actually, not only that, but like they fleeced all these people to give people like Kim Guilfoyle $60,000 speaking fee. Like, that's the kind of thing that like maybe. It builds up and actually could somewhat damage Trump's reputation in the party.
0: So, onto some of the revelations about other Trump world characters. There was a lot of mentions of pardons, that, which I found interesting, among this idea of various members of Congress asking Trump for pardons. And then my favorite part was Sean Hannity suggesting that he sort of smooth things over. Trump smooth things over with Democrats by pardoning Hunter Biden. I didn't have that on my bingo card. <laughs>
1: I did not have Sean Hannity, the uniter in chief here. <laughs> also, there's just like, a, that's like a Russian nesting doll of stuff here. Like pardon Hunter Biden for what?
0: oh they're like we are willing to waive his behavior on the laptop and i mean it's like just liberals upset about this just read gateway pundit you'll get it
1: right exactly just like blanket pardon for hunter biden on stuff like the lap for crimes <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah but i love that's where hannity's head was at just like Yes, I believe that Hunter Biden did some crimes, but we got to give him the pass because of unity or something as an olive branch to the Biden family.
0: Going forward, I mean, what can we anticipate coming out of the select committee in the future meetings? And what are some questions you're hoping get answered? Yeah, I think
1: they're going to go into, like, some interesting stuff around, like, So, for example, there was a story that came out in The Washington Post today that I think basically a lot of it probably came from the committee. I don't know that for sure. But like basically laying out like how Trump like how far Trump was willing to go to use like the Department of Justice to pursue these election fraud claims and like actually try to stop the certification of Joe Biden's victory. Like that's really interesting stuff and I think could have an impact on like kind of what the ultimate question here is. And I think the one that's the least clear, which is like, does the committee issue some kind of set of recommendations about whether Trump should be criminally prosecuted. And there was some tension so far, or at least some crossed wires, I don't really know. The chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson, said yesterday that he didn't see them doing any criminal referrals to the Department of Justice on Trump, even though like members like Liz Cheney have been pretty explicit about like saying that Trump like probably committed federal crimes in the course of trying to stop the steal. So like, I'm curious to see how the, how the committee reconciles. All that. They lay out this like clinical case that, like, yeah, Trump was going to like use the machinery of the government to kind of fraudulently keep himself in power. Like, what do they do? Do they just like kind of sit on it and go, like, here you go, everybody? So I'm really curious to see what they do there. Thursday's hearing too is supposed to focus on the Mike Pence role. And there's been some information about that already. But I think how they handle this is going to be super interesting, just given the likelihood that Mike Pence runs for president in 2024.
0: Well, plenty to look out for. The committee also has some revelations about the Proud Boys, and we'll be diving into that in today's interview. Okay, elsewhere, we have the arrest of these white supremacists in the Patriot Front in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I have to say, this was a very pleasing video to look at, all these guys in the, the khakis, kind of the classic Charlottesville white supremacist look. Sam, did you have a chance to see this video? I did,
1: yeah. I have some questions for you about it.
0: Can we go right into it? Yeah, let's dive in. What's the sartorial
1: evolution here? What are the through lines that you sense from... <laughs> from charlottesville to this in terms yeah, that, of the fashion
0: that's a great point so this kind of dovetails with what i'm seeing even from some i don't know relatively credible figures on the right who are assuming that these arrests were oh this is a false flag this is the fbi whatever so just set this up for folks over the weekend in coeur d'alene idaho which has its own unfortunate history as sort of being seen as a, a popular like white supremacist a readout outside of their pride march u-hauls full of members of this white supremacist group called the patriot front the cops pulled them over and arrested them 31 guys were arrested on conspiracy to riot now the patriot front is a offshoot of a group that was in charlottesville vanguard america now vanguard america kind of fell apart after james alex fields was photographed who was the charlottesville driver who fatally killed someone he was a member of their group or was holding shields with them and so they sort of collapsed they were remade as patriot front and so these guys they travel around and they often do these it's unclear what they were planning in idaho but they they kind of travel around the country and they do these kind of like if folks remember the mid-aughts or what have you we had these flash mobs. These are like white supremacist flash mobs. And so they sort of appear and they shoot off flares and they march with their flags and then they hustle. And usually what's become part of their aesthetic is these U-Hauls that they use. And so they rent a U-Haul, pack a bunch of guys into it. I believe the reason for that is that if everyone parks in one place, then that becomes a, a target for Antifa. So then they kind of gather in some unknown location and then drive out. So in this case, these guys were arrested wearing, I believe, Navy polos and khaki pants. And this is when you talk about the fashion of this, the reaction from a lot of people on the right is that these are FBI agents. I mean, first of all, they're not. But a lot of it has been, well, when I think of neo-Nazis, I think of guys in brown shirts, I think of these kind of roughneck types. I don't think of guys in polo shirts. but, But I think both going back to Charlottesville and even before that, we've seen there's kind of a split in how these white supremacists present themselves. And on one hand, you have the guys who are going to dress like stormtroopers who are really into the Nazi regalia or kind of looking very thuggish. And on the other side, you have what are known sometimes derisively as optics cucks, and so these are guys who are really on the lookout. They want to present as very clean cut, as very, these kind of like family men or nice young men. But by the way, they're white supremacists or neo-Nazis. And so in this case, I think Patriot Front is really like in that tradition, which is a long tradition in the white supremacist movement. And certainly, like like I said, I mean, you look at the people in Charlottesville, they were wearing khakis and button down shirts. These guys were too. That's super interesting. Respectability cucks. Exactly, exactly. We've talked on this podcast about Nick Fuentes, this white nationalist leader. I mean, this is a guy who wears a suit seemingly every day of his life. This idea that, I don't know, like the only like white supremacists are, are in biker gangs or something, I think is obviously not the case. But sort of getting into this idea that there has been this reaction, I think, from a lot of just regular conservatives that this is somehow an FBI front, which is certainly, I would say, a convenient thing to say if you want to suggest that there isn't a white supremacist threat in the country. The cops in Coeur d'Alene have said that obviously, no, these people were not FBI agents and they've released their names and their photos. And so I don't expect that to really put down the idea that this was a, a false flag operation but i think it disproves it
1: well like if they had shown up looking like biker neo-nazis out of like central casting wouldn't that even be more conspicuous like oh these fbi guys like they're coming in and they just like went to hot topic and like decided to like dress up as neo-nazis to me that's so ridiculous because you could just spin it however many different ways you want to
0: Yeah, I mean, this kind of reaction to this kind of knee jerk idea to be like, well, that's simply the FBI comes from the same school of thought where whenever there's a shooting that doesn't look great for the right, they say, well, this is a false flag operation, this kind of stuff, flooding the country with guns, would surely never naturally have this consequence. Now that said, when you say Sam, like, why does it matter what they're wearing? Well, some of this has been sort of fueled by the fact that I believe in March of last year, there was supposed to be kind of a January 6th reborn rally uh, in front of the Capitol that really came to nothing. We talked about this on the podcast before, but, but there was a a picture of that of like four or five guys who look identical wearing the same clothes they seem to be wearing some kind of like tactical gear and that was seen as a bunch of undercover cops and I will say that was never just proven I mean that may well have been the case I mean they were kind of just standing <laughs> around and that I think has especially fueled this idea that these like kind of like clean cut people at right wing protests are themselves or undercover cops. But beyond just this one arrest, I think this shows that allegedly we haven't seen a full list of charges or what Patriot Front was planning here. But it's further evidence of this larger backlash on the right to lgbt issues these guys it's no accident i think that they were allegedly targeting a pride march i I think we can look at this from everything from the sort of legislative end the florida don't say gay bill to this more kind of stormtrooper esque thing where obviously they were planning something for this march to in california they the proud boys last weekend were intent on busting up one of these i believe a drag queen event
1: yeah drag queen story hour in the bay area yeah
0: Exactly. And so this is sort of becoming more and more of a topic on the right. And this idea, I think, in particular of attacking trans people. And I think it's one of these things where sometimes it can be so obvious that we miss it. But it is, I think, especially disturbing how you can see whether it's Fox News or other conservative media and politicians like Ron DeSantis, you can see them kind of marching in step with these white nationalists and other far right groups. Yeah. Like, do you think this is the kind of thing that would have happened like a year ago at all? Because like. I don't think so. I mean, maybe a year ago, but maybe not two or three years ago. I mean, I think there was definitely a sense after the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage. I think there was sort of a temporary retreat on on gay issues by the right. And then I think they've kind of figured out how to use particularly trans issues as a wedge point. And I think this is I think there's this sense on the right that this is a a weak point where maybe it might even be tolerated, certainly among fellow conservatives to really ramp up these attacks.
1: No, to your point, I think it's like the fact that it's in Idaho is because these guys aren't they're not like they did this in Idaho, but like...
0: I believe there was one person from Idaho, and I think the rest were from uh, elsewhere in the country. They're
1: like from Texas and like elsewhere. But it's interesting that it happened in Idaho for the reasons that you outlined. And also like the county where it happened was one of three that voted for this like super, super far right candidate, actually the (laughs) Lieutenant Governor of Idaho, Janice McGeehan, who challenged the sitting governor, Brad Little. And she got the Trump endorsement and like lost by like 30 points when Idaho had their primary. But she won only three counties and and this was one of them and she like is really i mean i i can't think of like a statewide candidate anywhere else this cycle who had like the extent of like her connections with militia groups and just the far right and so like when i was reading the reports on this it sort of was like a sad like oh yeah like the place where this happened wasn't really surprising well do you think they chose this place for a reason like that there was a sort of statement of, like, the fact that an LGBT group was putting on a public event in a place like this that's considered kind of a historical stronghold of white supremacy and all that, like, that this was sort of an effort to, like, kind of shut something like this down?
0: That's a great question. I mean, obviously, we haven't seen a lot about their motivations, but I do think it's notable that, I mean, they weren't targeting this in San Francisco or in kind of another big liberal city in a blue state. I mean, I do think that there's maybe an attempt here. They're seeing this as kind of, like, pride in this, like, really conservative area that they're are striking back. All
1: right, Will, who's our guest today?
0: So, speaking of far-right groups, this week we have Andy Campbell. He's a senior editor at the Huffington Post covering the radical right. And relevant to the select committee talk, he's the author of a new book coming out in September on the Proud Boys. It's called We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. So, this is the guy who's the expert on the Proud Boys, and the, the select committee really seems to have the Proud Boys in their sights. They're a weird, weird little group, maybe not so little anymore. I'm excited to talk to Andy about it. Fevered Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feveredreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Okay, Andy Campbell, welcome to Fever Dreams. Hey, happy to be here, guys. So Andy, you are sort of a maybe the leading expert on the Proud Boys, who is not himself a third-degree Proud Boy. The January 6th, the first hearing in particular, was really the Proud Boys were front and center. So I think for a lot of people, this was sort of the first taste they were getting of the Proud Boys.
2: Right. It's interesting you say that because I think not only are people just getting a taste of the Proud Boys after not only the January 6th hearings, but their sedition charges, I really think that a lot of people, maybe even the committee members themselves, don't have a full grasp of what the revelations from the January 6th Proud Boys indictment sort of brought to the table. And that is that a year after January 6th insurrection, we learn that Enrique Tarrio, leader of the Proud Boys, was holding on December 30th, well before January 6th, a document titled 1776 Returns, which was a plan to storm multiple buildings at the Capitol. So that was the first time that we had heard that there was a plan prior to Trump's speech at the Ellipse on January 6th, that there was a plan in place to storm the Capitol. Some Oath Keepers and Proud Boys had sort of mentioned like, oh, what if we storm it on their private chats? We knew that the Proud Boys were planning to get Violent, and they were planning January 6th as their big day for Trump, right? But we didn't know until that document came down that there was an, a plan in place. And as soon as that came down, as soon as that evidence came out, all of us extremism reporters knew. They're going to get sedition charges. This is a huge deal. And every single time a court document mentions now that planning document from December 30th, it's treated as if it's news because people are like, holy crap, you're telling me that there is direct planning in place for the storming of the Capitol. And it turns out it's true. And the Proud Boys have now gone from bumbling street gang who's been committing violence in the American streets for the last six years or so to outsized role in the insurrection and now to
0: architects. For those of us who have been following this closely, I mean, and I feel like the committee didn't quite say this in the the first one, maybe they will later. I mean, I think if you look at what happened on January 6th, it seems as though the Proud Boys decided, well, there's going to be all these angry people there, but we need someone who's kind of the spark to start the riot. And we're going to be that spark.
2: Right. And that's how the Proud Boys lend themselves to any situation. I mean, in my book, one of the main arguments, I mean, my book is a number of things. It is one, a sort of primer for the general public on how to talk about any of these things like we do in our extremism reporting circles, it talks about Antifa, it talks about how the Proud Boys mollify law enforcement in the media and how they've inserted themselves in the GOP. But it also shows that the playbook that they leave behind and the threat going forward beyond January 6th is that. They have so normalized political violence today that you have people in football pads and surplus military gear showing up at school board meetings and abortion rallies and now pride events. And this is something we're going to see over and over again. And that's largely due to the Proud Boys. They showed that if you present yourself as an extremist group that says, hey, If you tell us, if you mobilize us, or if you grieve about something on Fox News, we're going to go show up there with football helmets, pepper spray, and batons. They've shown that the GOP responds well to that. And so now all kinds of extremist groups are doing that. The scariest part about the Proud Boys going forward beyond just January 6th to me is that we are going to see weapons and fighting at every civic event now. It's not just Trump rallies. It's every single civic event going forward. And that's scary.
0: So, for folks who have not been paying super close attention to the Proud Boys, or, or people who the first they were hearing of them was this Select Committee hearing, let's do a Proud Boys one hundred and one. Who are these guys? How do they operate? Where did they come from? And what's with the name?
2: Right. Well, the Proud Boys are a are basically the manifestation of a right wing podcaster and media mogul named Gavin McGinnis who founded, who was a co founder of Vice Media, and in the Early aughts, he sort of brought this misogynist, gross misogyny to the media space in a way that was palatable for young audiences. And for example, one thing he wrote, I think in 2006, Early aughts, The Vice Guide to getting chicks. It is basically just a primer on getting away with date rape. And these were the kinds of sort of disgusting content that was profitable among young people because it flew in the face of sort of like mainstream media. And also that was the thing of the times. I mean, misogyny in media was huge. And so Gavin was sort of pushed out over time from Vice as they became more popular and became beholden to advertisers and investors Gavin's voice was no longer seen as something that was sellable. And so he leaves Vice sort of hostily and starts his own show called The Gavin McGinnis Show on Compound Media. And through that show, he spells out on the very first episode of his show his sort of mantra for what his show is going to be. And that is, I want to cater to nationalists, misogynists. I want to, quote, venerate the housewife and keep women at home. And I want to violently oppose anyone else. And, of course, there were a lot of shock jocks that around that time that that had a similar sort of devil-may-care attitude. But where Gavin was different was he took that audience and he told them over and over, I want you to go and fight the opposition. So he essentially turned his audience into a gang. Now, the Proud Boys name comes from, and this is actually, you've heard it here first, this is one of the openings of my book. It came while he was at a recital for two of his children at a school in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And he was watching as a young kid who he assumed was Puerto Rican. I'm not sure if that's true. Maybe a 12-year-old boy gets up and sings this song from the Aladdin musical called Proud of Your Boy. Proud of Your Boy, he said on his show, was, quote, the gayest fucking song. He spent half a show making fun of this little 12-year-old boy. And then Proud of your boy became sort of a joke calling card among him and his audience. So they would call in and instead of saying the age old radio line, hey, first time caller, long time listener, they would say proud of your boy when they joined the call. And so this became a sort of joke mantra. And as he created this gang through his show, he decided to name them the Proud Boys. Now, fast forward a couple of years, he throughout their early career, he made it a rule that to move ahead in the Proud Boys, you had to commit significant acts of violence for the cause. And that cause was GOP grievances and Trump. And so what we saw as extremism reporters over the years was that January 6th was the culmination of something that had been happening over and over at the hands of the Proud Boys over the past few years, which is that any GOP grievance we're going to get out there in the street. We're going to fight it. They have been attacking leftist protesters throughout Trump's career. And every time Trump would point a finger at Antifa or BLM, Proud Boys would host an event at which Antifa and BLM would show up and then they would brawl it out. So January 6th comes around and this is just another GOP grievance. The the current one being the election of Joe Biden and the Proud Boys were ready to jump into action for Trump because of his grievance. Now it wasn't until much later that we learned that they had a direct plot in their hands to storm the Capitol and other buildings in DC. But we knew going into it that these guys were gearing up for January 6th as one of their big events in the
1: name of Trump. Andy, this is Sam. Good to get to have you on. I guess like I'm curious like how you would sort of like describe what the Proud Boys are now. I know you use the term, like, street gang, and that definitely seems to comport with, like, what their recent history has been. But in reading some of the recent, like, stories about them, like, I'm intrigued particularly by, like, these reports of their efforts to kind of, like, infiltrate formal, like, political organizations, like that New York Times story on their efforts to get inside the Miami-Dade Republican Party. So, like, I guess right at this juncture, like, obviously this is an organization that's still really interested in like guerrilla disruption and street violence and all that kind of stuff. But like, Do you sense them moving in a like really deliberate direction to actually try and embed themselves in like a at least what is currently nonviolent and sort of formal political process?
2: Absolutely. And you just hit a huge beat of the book. And one of the big fears going forward is that the Proud Boys have been so resilient over the years in the face of sweeping arrests. I mean, their leaders have been arrested time and time again for assaults that they've committed across the country. There was an attack outside a GOP club event in Manhattan in 2018 that sent a number of their people to prison, some of which are still there for that. It also led their founder, Gavin McGinnis, to quote unquote step down in some sort of effort to alleviate their sentences is how he described it. But despite their arrests of high-caliber characters despite being involved in every major act of street-level extremism since Trump took office, including Unite the Right in Charlottesville, these guys have stuck around where other extremist groups have sort of dissolved. But the way that they legitimize themselves is threefold. It's through the infiltration and mollification of the press, the law enforcement at their events, and especially their infiltrations of the GOP and mainstream politics. And so not only did they have and continue to have strong support from Trump's inner circle of politicians, but they are running for office this year and in the next election. In my book, I write about, and Will and a number of other extremism reporters have reported over the years, these guys have brought together some GOP elites and even those close to Trump. They've been their security forces. They've thrown events with them and they've done propaganda for other GOP. Ann Coulter used them as a security for a number of her (laughs) events and even wrote several blogs following the insurrection titled Thank God for the Proud Boys, in which she sort of Salivates over them. Roger Stone was in contact with Enrique Tarrio on January sixth and had him and the leader of the Oath Keepers militia in a text message group called Friends of Stone. These guys are in close contact with and they work hard on their relationships with the GOP because it legitimizes them. It positions what they are, what they want to do, which is political violence. It's in their rule set. Having those relationships positions political violence as constitutionally protected speech. And so they know that when they can show, hey, we've got Ann Coulter, Roger Stone, Ted Cruz, Matt Gates on our side, this is constitutionally protected speech. And certainly after the insurrection, we saw a number of top right-wing pundits and politicians characterizing the insurrection as just that. They called it legitimate political discourse, which is ridiculous. I mean, but this is how The Proud Boys have normalized themselves and stayed resilient. And so going forward, yes, they are running for office all over the country in races, big and small. But whether or not they win, and I I don't believe that they're going to win much. Their threat lies in the fact that they're going, okay, even if we have five Proud Boys run for a school board somewhere, then all of a sudden we've got Proud Boys School Board and we can make decisions that make news in that small jurisdiction. Hopefully down the line, we'll be able to sort of ramp that effort up.
0: So Andy, your book is called We Are Proud Boys. And I think a lot of people wondering, seeing these videos of these kind of mobs of men attacking the Capitol Police, they wonder like, what is it that draws someone to the Proud Boys? I mean, who are these guys? What's their makeup? Like, what's their deal? How does someone go from listening to a shock jock radio show or supporting Trump to becoming a Proud Boy?
2: Right. And the answer to that is also the reason why All of us paid attention to the Proud Boys from right off the bat and why they were concerning is because early in 2017 after Trump takes office, his political rallies from followers continue and they just become these huge parties containing all number of new extremist groups and symbology. And the Proud Boys sort of shone above the rest because here were these guys who weren't hiding behind the anonymity of their online spaces. They weren't hiding behind masks and sort of like capes and all this stuff. They had a uniform. They talked to the press. They gave their names and they wanted to be lionized for the violence that they committed against the left. It's in their, the way that they rank up is by committing violence for that group. And they have a number of other rituals that help them rank up, which we can go into as well, if you want. But the Proud Boys promise to, to new recruits is you are going to take that anger that sort of MAGA anger that your racist uncle is spewing on Facebook. And not only are we going to lionize you for that, if you punch somebody, if you punch a commie, if you punch a leftist protester, an Antifa, a BLM, we are going to, your face is going to be plastered across conservative media. You're going to be a hero. And there have been a number of heroes, including one of the Proud boys accused of seditious conspiracy named Ethan Nordine who Ethan Nordeen punched a guy in Portland, Oregon. Ethan Nordeen punched a guy out in Portland, Oregon in 2018. And within two weeks, he was named Proud Boy of the Week. He was put on Alex Jones and put in front of his millions of viewers. And he was lionized with a nickname, Rufio Panman, reference to the leader of the Lost Boys in Hook. And so you are guaranteed as a Proud Boy that you can, you're not only going to have a group, of like-minded dudes who hate commies, but your frothing rage is going to be given an outlet. And we as an organization are going to, stand behind you and and position what you're doing as legitimate political discourse. And to their point and to their credit, the Proud Boys have rarely faced significant consequences. And that's part of the reason why this seditious conspiracy case is so important and groundbreaking is that it's the first time the federal government has really leaned on these guys. An outgoing Department of Homeland Security official following January 6th told The Times that, oh, we thought that they were just a drinking club of sort of like Knights of Columbus, which is exactly how Gavin McGuinness wants to project the Proud Boys name, because, again, he wants what they're doing, which is violence, political violence. He wants that to look legitimized. And so he characterizes them as a Knights of Columbus style group that a fraternal boys organization That is reluctantly pulled into violence by leftists. Certainly, that's not true, but it was such a convincing argument over the years and until the insurrection that even the Department of Homeland Security characterized them that way. So now that the Proud Boys' violence and their rules for violence is sort of being put on display in front of the January 6th committee and then later among their sedition hearings, that promise given to new recruits is going to be in front of the courts. I'm interested to see how they try to deflect from this.
1: So you kind of left something hanging out over the plate here, which is what are some of the weirder ways to level up as a proud boy so you can like punch out a commie on the street? Sure. But like, what's the really unusual stuff here?
2: Right. So there's four ranks in the Proud Boys. Again, something not unlike the Knights of Columbus, a fraternal organization, but what defers the Proud Boys from them is these rules were built in real time on Gavin McGinnis' show by Gavin McGinnis and via his various callers on his show. The first rank into the Proud Boys is to just acknowledge anywhere and everywhere, including and especially when you get arrested or in trouble at work or or otherwise, that you're a proud boy. Declare you're a proud boy. Take the oath. And I hate to give the proud boys a clip of me doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I am a Western chauvinist, and I refuse to apologize for creating the modern world.
0: You're a first-degree proud boy now.
2: Yeah, I guess I am. (laughs) And Roger Stone is also a first-degree proud boy, and he's taking the oath. But that is a deceptively binding contract because their reputation precedes them. And if you are on social media saying this stuff, you are putting yourself inside of a group that is known for political violence and known to pal around with all the other abhorrent extremist groups, including neo-Nazis, KKK. I mean, the Proud Boys have all types of people within their ranks, none of them good, right? So you are swearing allegiance to that. The second degree of the Proud Boys is, in each chapter um, can sort of carry this out differently, but the second degree initiation comes when a chapter leader decides to run this initiation on you which is to be surrounded by a number of other proud boys and name five breakfast cereals while you're getting punched by all of them. Now, <laughs> what this ends up I mean it is a it is a violent act, but the evidence of the cereal initiation ceremony is induces cringe. I mean, this is like
0: when I started embedding, this was long ago, back in 2017, 2016, I found a couple of these initiation videos because they would post them really openly on YouTube. I just embedded a couple and it was just like instantly pulled offline because, I mean, they were just like, oh, this looks awful to outsiders. Oh, it's embarrassing. Lucky Charms, cereal. <laughs> raisin Bran. You'll
2: see them being surrounded by dudes with their pants half falling down and like holding cigarettes and American flags and like weak-willed punching each other while they like burble out Raisin Bran and kicks. I've also noticed. this is worth noting that all of the cereals they list out are c-tier at best i mean we're talking kicks raisin bran come on man come on but on top of that if that wasn't embarrassing enough the second degree requires you to adhere to something. And this is something, Will, that you reported on one of the first people to report on this, I believe, which is the no wanks policy. And that is that you rarely, if ever, masturbate, and you only do so when you're within a couple feet of a woman, which is terrifying and disgusting, or unless you're having sex. And this, it's called no wanks. Gavin McGinnis swears by it and This is a sort of, like, popular thing among right-wing loudmouths who believe that if you hold it off, you are going to—your testosterone levels are going to fly, you're going to love your wife more, yada, yada, yada. It's ridiculous and stupid and embarrassing to the point where I couldn't get any Proud Boy to speak on the record or off about whether or not they adhere to it. However, on Gavin McGinnis' show— there were a number of Proud Boys that called in and said, This is a revelation. I'm going to be doing this forever, and blah, 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 blah. The funny part about No Wanks Beyond the Ridiculous Nature is that all of it is based off of a couple of studies with like, Like Chinese studies with like a sample size of 10 from the early aughts that found that connection between high testosterone levels and guys who didn't masturbate. There are many more studies that find that the opposite is true, that when you do masturbate, your testosterone goes up. So it's all bunk science and it's used for most right wing loudmouths' purposes to sell testosterone supplements to their audience. But for Gavin, it was a way of sort of being like, this helps you fight. This helps you pent up adrenaline and testosterone for when you go out there and fight.
0: I, for one, am surprised that Gavin McGinnis did not peer review his masturbation. (laughs) (laughs) So as we close it out here, Andy, if there's something in your book that hasn't been reported before, I mean, tell me one of the strangest things or one of the most interesting things you discovered about the Proud Boys while working on this book. We are Proud Boys. (sighs) All right, I'll give you a tidbit. I'll give you a tidbit, but
2: I'm not going to give you all of it.
0: Okay, all right. You got to buy the book, folks, coming out in September.
2: You got to buy the book. One of the Proud Boys, their hyper-litigious lawyer, his name's Jason Lee Van Dyke, has threatened all of us. I'm sure he sent you a threatening email or two over the years, is no longer affiliated technically with the Proud Boys, although there's evidence he owns some of their LLCs. Anyway, there's another guy who decided after this lawyer was just treating everyone like crap, he's been threatening people over the years, this other guy who you can read about in the book decides he's going to dedicate his life to fucking with Jason Van Dyke and the Proud Boys. And so he files all of these claims against the Texas State Bar where Jason uh where Jason Lee Van Dyke practices. There is a number of things that happen in between there, but the craziest thing and the most unresolved thing going forward that we're looking into is that that man who went after Jason Lee Van Dyke over the years, I was reaching out to him during my book writing process to get an interview with him. He was found in his apartment, stabbed to death in the neck. I won't be talking to him. That case is unresolved. I have no evidence that... Jason Lee Van Dyker, the Proud Boys are to blame, but it'll be interesting to see if they get some knocks on their doors with that.
0: Yes, that was the Thomas Retzlaff murder, and Retzlaff, a guy with a lot of enemies, should be interested to see how that story shakes out. Well, Andy Campbell, the book is called We Are Proud Boys. It's coming out in September. The publication date got pushed up because the American people were watching the select hearing, and people want to know what's going on with the Proud Boys. Additionally, you are on Twitter at Andy B. Campbell, and Andy is just tweeting out great content, great reporting on both Proud Boys and other extremist groups. Andy, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hey, and thank you. And thank you for your work over the years, Will, because if you and other Daily Beast reporters and my fiancé and fellow extremism reporter, Tess Owen, hadn't done so much work, and if researchers and other anti-fascists hadn't done so much work, I, I wouldn't have been able to write this. You guys are the most cited people in my book, so I appreciate it.
0: Yes, you are engaged to Tess Owen, who folks may remember from the Forgiato Blow MAGA Rapper episode. <laughs> Yes, just two episodes ago. Well, I can only assume Forgiato will be performing, or perhaps officiating, your wedding. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Andy, for joining us. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> All right, now we move on to Fresh Hell, the place where I bring you the strangest, the darkest depths of what's going on in the American right. And sometimes maybe you learn some tips that you might bring into your own life. And that's the case this time. Sam, are you familiar? Let's say you go order groceries and the cashier hands you a receipt. Are you touching that thing? I'm briefly
1: touching it unless it's a CVS receipt and it's the length of an ancient medieval scroll (laughs) with $2 (laughs) off floss picks and a leave. In which case, you bet I'm putting that right in my pocket and saving it for later, but generally
0: no. That sounds like a big mistake because according (laughs) to a sort of longstanding trend that I want to explore today – on the right-wing manosphere, these are people who are obsessed with essences, with testosterone, with esoteric tips. The idea of touching receipt paper is quite a feminizing practice. Now, this has been something I've been hoping to write an article about for several years now because it's always kind of just bubbling bo- below the surface. But lately, I feel like I'm seeing a resurgence in this idea. So here's what it is: there is a belief among many in the right-wing manosphere that receipt paper, which is, if we think about it, it's kind of that like plasticky paper that This has substances within it that will essentially turn a man into a woman, that these are feminizing hormones, that in the same way, people may have heard this insult soy boy. And this is the idea that consuming soy products like tofu, that this has estrogen within it, and and you will no longer be the Spartan man you once were, that you will start to be feminized. So this is also, it's a little less famous, though, that this is going on, they believe, with receipts. And so you have a lot of, recently I saw on Twitter, someone had a posted a screenshot of, a I believe, a Tinder profile where the man was, the was bragging about what a great catch he would be and he said six foot and I never touch receipts <laughs> you might say What? And so I have sort of a a collection of references to this receipts thing that that I want to make people aware of. So for example, here's an account called Roman Vigor. And of course, his Twitter profile is a centurion. And so easy tips to protect your testosterone. And some of them are eat eggs, sleep eight hours, lift weights, have regular sex, all right, (laughs) sunbathe. And so we're getting a little more, we're getting a little more into our esoteric tips here. And so he says, don't drink from plastic bottles, sunbathe. And then don't touch receipts. If you don't protect your testosterone, who will? And this receipts thing kind of recurs. And I just wanted to make the listeners aware of it. Here's another example from a guy named Reagan Lodge. Testosterone health is important. Many evil toxins conspire to deprive you. And his tip is don't even look at receipt paper.
1: So that's right
0: what is going on here? Well, some receipt paper, I've been on a a sort of long descent into whether I should stop touching receipts. People, I feel like there was a point where people really like cashiers really pushing receipt paper on you. Now, I don't want to say if that's if that was a plot or what, but it felt like over the past few years that a lot more now people are like, you kind of have to ask for a receipt. And that was a personal issue for me because I was just sick of all this receipt paper. But but I'm sure these guys, the Manosphere guys, I think are thrilled about it because it means just less receipt paper in the world. Well, What's going on is they believe that receipt Paper contains this chemical substance called bisphenol A, and they believe it is what they call a xenoestrogen, which is, I think, just a way to put scary s- prefix in front of estrogen. And so they say that this is the stuff that feminizes you. So Sam, then I've given you kind of this crash course that normally you'd have to pay $1,000 for some kind of Spartan retreat, this kind of information. What do you think of this? So the first thing that I think of
1: is, like, how much of this, like, pseudoscience-y, like, conspiracy-minded stuff is just, like, bizarro version of just, like, like new agey shit. Like I grew up in California and like everything in the like nineties and aughts was just like, no BPA, like BPA is going to kill you. And I had relatives who were like, never like heat up anything in plastic. And there was no talk of, of receipts. So I'll I'll grant that. But like, it is very strange that this sort of like macho, like generally pretty right-wing ideology is just sort of reheating points from like people who drive Subarus and shop at the like bulk organic
0: market. That's a great point. I mean, there is a lot of this. It's a superstition, essentially. I really tried to find proof of this bisphenol stuff that this will feminize you. And the most credible source I found was a little website called Infowars. So it doesn't seem that there's a ton of evidence for it. But at the same time, I I will say there is kind of a hot debate over even among people on the right and and within the manosphere, receipts have not totally been done away with because it's also kind of masculine to claim expenses from your employer and other things you might need receipts for. So I looked at a 4chan thread about this. On one hand, here's the anti-receipt (laughs) guy. Oh my God. Don't touch that receipt paper, man. Take a picture. Because people are saying, basically, this thread was sparked by you because someone's like, look, I know we all don't touch receipts. However, I might need a receipt sometime. They have a place in the world. So someone says, my advice, don't touch that receipt paper, man. Take a picture and ask them to throw it away for you. Can you imagine? I mean, this is like the tinfoil hat guy in better call Saul level. And then he says, this shit is covered in xenoestrogens. And yeah, I also found a self-identified groiper. This is the fat toad guy on Twitter. And he says, I can't believe people really think... So he's kind of an ideological fellow traveler with these guys, but he disagrees. So he says, I can't believe people really think that touching a receipt for a few seconds will seriously affect their testosterone levels. Have fun being double charged for your apple cider vinegar vitamin K2 supplement. And then th- these expletives follow. So he's saying, look... I'm loading up on all my manosphere gear. I'm getting my whey protein, et cetera. But I, I got to have my receipt for it. So this is sort of a, a lesser known divide in the manosphere. And I think the larger picture is, Sam, I, I think you're right. I mean, this is our slide as a society into these new age beliefs. And I think it's reaction to modernity, the idea of receipts. They don't like it. They don't like the plasticky paper. And frankly, neither do I.
1: Yeah, I think anybody who needs a risk re- is a reimbursement cuck and or a deals cuck. And I think it's, look, the Romans didn't need to get reimbursed reimbursed for anything and so I think they're on to something. Just housing zinc and not even thinking about receipts. That's another problem is if you think about receipts <laughs>
0: that's just as bad. That's just as
1: That's bad. even worse. Some places get around this by emailing receipts. Like that's even dangerous. <laughs> the emails have xenoestrogens so and dangerous carcinogens.
0: On that note let's wrap up this episode of fever dreams from the daily beast in future installments we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at the daily beast and beyond from politics to popular culture we hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table if you'd like to follow us on twitter i'm at will summer and kelly is at kelly weill that's w-e-i-l-l come say hi This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.